Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon. My name is April Dombowski. I'm the health correspondent at KQED Public Radio, and I am pleased to be back at the Commonwealth Club to serve as a moderator for today's program with author Sam Jonas. Sam is here to discuss his new book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. I've also covered some of these issues for KQED, so I'm very pleased to be here with Sam to discuss them today. Sam was one of the first writers to bring attention to the opioid epidemic in 2015 and to trace it back to doctors who overprescribed pain pills. That was in his award-winning book, Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. His new book charts the shift in the drug trade from agricultural-based drugs like opium to lab-based synthetic drugs like fentanyl, and it explores the growing destruction these drugs have caused in communities around the country. Sam, welcome. Great to be with you, uh, April. Thanks very much. Before we jump in, uh, just to put it out there to those of you watching, if you have a question that you'd like to ask Sam, please share it in the YouTube chat feature. They'll be forwarded to me throughout the program, and I hope to get to as many of them as possible. So Sam, um, your earlier book, Dreamland, it had such an impact. It really opened up the national conversation about opioids and addiction that we are all having now. What motivated you to come back to this and to write a second book? Well, um, actually, I really didn't think that I should write, would write a book, a second book about this because I was kind of thinking, you know, a little bit old school about this problem. And what else is there after heroin? You know, I mean, I, I, to me, that was like the final frontier in bad drugs. You want to stick away from, stay away from that stuff. And um, here we are in the middle of it. What was beyond that? Well, of course, uh, within about a year of Dreamland coming out, certainly with by the time the, uh, the paperback came out a, a, a year later, it was clear that fentanyl was becoming the next uh, horizon. And um, as I got into that, at first I was so exhausted. I, I'll be honest with you, I was exhausted. I was physically kind of mentally drained. At the same time, by the way, um, what I, much to the surprise of myself and my family, um, I began to get all these invitations to come speak about Dreamland, uh, which this was a surprise because when I was doing Dreamland, nobody wanted to talk about this topic. I thought, I really thought the book would die, that would have no impact whatsoever. And then surprisingly, as the book comes out and then the years pass, more and more invitations. So I'm traveling around the country and it's in traveling around the country, talking to people, seeing people and understanding then the role that fentanyl's now begun to play that I begin to realize, actually, this is a this is a much bigger story now. It's morphing. It's what's fascinating is it, I realized as it's time went on that the supplies were almost equal to the amount of prescri prescription drugs that were prescribed by doctors, you know, coast to coast for 15, 20 years covering the country. The same thing was happening with fentanyl and actually with methamphetamine, but um, it was coming from the underworld. So you see this trans uh, re replacement of the underworld. Um, uh, taking the place of, of, of the, the doctors and pharmaceutical companies. And to me, that began to, I began to think, gee, this is, this is, a, this is huge. So before we go deeper, let's just take a, a minute to go over some definitions, especially for some folks out there who may need to brush up on their illicit drugs. So fentanyl sure. is an opioid. 
methamphetamine is a stimulant. Uh, break this down for us. You know, when people take either drug, what what kind of feeling are they looking for? Well, first of all, fentanyl was invented in 1960. It revolutionized anesthesia. It's it's a great drug when used medically. I, I had a heart attack four years ago. They gave me fentanyl. I'm very happy that they did. I want to thank those doctors. Um, they, it revolutionized anesthesia, making it easier to, to pe- for people to recover from, anest- uh, from a s- surgery, come out of anesthesia, and so on. Um, it's used well, in childbirth, too. I'm sorry, what's that? It's used in childbirth, too. Very exactly. Small it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a well-used drug. It's really remarkable. The problem is, of course, it's extraordinarily potent. Or the benefit of it is it's very potent and very, um, um, but when used um, on an illicit way in a st- on the street, of course, it, it can cause a horrifying, horrifying damage. It does replace heroin. It gives you the same effects of heroin, um, uh, kind of a euphoria. Um, it's, it, it also, uh, when you can be addicted, you can develop a tolerance to it, and, there, and then you can, you can uh, be visited by withdrawals and, and, and dope sickness the, the way uh, any heroin addict would be. So it is uh, a, a chemical, a synthetic replacement um, uh, uh, for heroin. A methamphetamine, on the other hand, is really has no, well, it may have a slight medical use, but, but by and large, it's not been used medically so much. It's, it's a stimulant. It was used by Nazi soldiers and kamikaze pilots in, in, in World War II, uh, invented by a Japanese uh, uh, researcher many years ago uh, in the early part of the last century. And it is a stimulant. Um, it is not good for the brain in prolonged use. It tends to um, uh, kind of decay the body and the mind. Uh, uh, slowly, we thought. Um, I think that's part of the story, though, is that now it seems to do it quite a bit more rapidly with the new stuff that's coming out of Mexico. We can talk about that that later. But it is a stimulant, keeps you up, moving. It's a, it was a party drug. For a long time, it was a party drug. It was very big in the gay community. It was just a, a way to be kind of around people and, and having a good time and partying and that kind of stuff. And, and then, of course, but it is, it is uh, uh, addictive, as, as other drugs are. And so these, these are both synthetic drugs. You know, how are they, how are they made? you know, compared to heroin, for example? Uh, synthetic drugs are basically all made from chemicals that you get on the world chemical markets. Uh, obviously, um, uh, heroin is made with uh, opium poppies, famously so, uh, grown that are grown according to certain seasons and uh, harvested. It's a very arduous harvest that you have to engage in. There's no machine that'll do it. Um, and so you end up, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a plant-based drug. Heroin is a plant-based drug that is limited by, by how often you can grow it. Fentanyl is quite the opposite. Uh, as long as you have the chemicals, uh, you can uh, make it any all, all, all year round. And, and that's kind of what's been happening lately. And how, I mean, I, I can see that if you're not dependent on the weather, if you're not dependent on the seasons, if you don't need you know, a massive crew to tend your crops. Uh, it sounds like that's part of what's become really appealing to the, to the drug traffickers. Uh, absolutely. This is a major lesson that, you know, they really learned, it was interesting, they really learned it with methamphetamine, you know, 20, 30 years ago. They really grew to dominate the methamphetamine trade, taking it really outcompeting the biker gangs, the Hells Angels that really had dominated it in the, 50, in the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. In the late 80s, the Mexicans down in San Diego particularly begin to take it over. And there, there they realize there are people there who are more business people than, 
than the typical uh, Sinaloa cowboy, shoot them up ranchero types. And they begin to see, you know, we don't need to have any land. We don't need to grow any. We don't need to rely on sunlight or the seasons. We can just make this stuff as long as we have the, the chemicals. That lesson they learned with methamphetamine first. And they learned that really well, clearly by the 1990s, they had industrialized quantities of the stuff, making it from a, drug, a chemical called ephedrine. And then they began to understand that we in the United States were creating this brand new market for opioids. When I was living in Mexico, I lived in Mexico for, for 10 years. When I was living in Mexico, no trafficker really wanted to be involved in heroin. There was no market for it. It's a scuzzy drug. People looked at it as a very scuzzy kind of thing. And so it was cocaine. It was marijuana. That was the stuff. And methamphetamine, too, because it made a lot, of, a, a lot of money. But then we created this entire uh, uh, market for it, and they begin to, get to, to supply that. And along the way, then, they discover fentanyl as well as a replacement for the heroin that they're now beginning to sell to satisfy our, our demand for, uh, for opioids. Um, you also write about how the legalization of marijuana in many states also stimulated the market for synthetic drugs. How did those policy changes contribute? Well, what you have to keep in mind is that, that marijuana became, over the decades, a, 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 um, a replacement, a kind of a, a, well, a gateway drug for a lot of men in poverty, Farmers, ranchers, they, 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 they saw it as a way of coming into the, the, the middle class. And so a lot of folks tra- transitioned from tomatoes and cucumbers and lettuce to, to marijuana, 60s and 70s and 80s. You're seeing this a lot. And all the major traffickers, but let, take uh, Chapo Guzman, for example, were um, uh, uh, marijuana growers or marijuana traffickers. First, where you learn uh, your trade. But then we begin to legalize it they're already moved out of the poverty in which they grew up. And, and um, we begin to legalize marijuana in California, then, of course, other states. And they begin to see, oh, my God, this market that I had relied on is fading. And so they begin to, they're not, however, going to go back to milking cows. They're not going to go back to, um, you know, uh, uh, just all kinds of uh, the, 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 the work that they used to do and their grandparents did and so on. So methamphetamine, makes an appearance about the time this is happening. And it begin, and, and what's more, the knowledge of how to make it begins to spread. There's really now in Mexico, on the western side, uh, northwest side of Mexico, really what, I would, what I've termed a kind of an, a Silicon Valley of meth production. A lot of knowledge, a lot of innovation, a lot of people who've worked in labs, access to those chemicals coming in from these two ports that are right nearby. All of that taught them, taught them this. And then Along comes, along comes um, fentanyl, and fentanyl is all, they see it all, when they learn it, when they, see, when they see it for the first time that this is possible, it fits right in their wheelhouse, you know, oh, we've done this with meth, damn, let's just do it with, 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 with uh, fentanyl replacing heroin as well. Um, your book is driven by a lot of personal narratives that illustrate these these market shifts that we're talking about um, and their effects, you know, on individual people. One of them is is Tommy Rao. Um, he started with prescription pain pills. Um, can you just describe how did this happen for him and how did his addiction evolve? Yeah, uh, Tommy Rao um, uh, comes from a wonderful family in Akron. Ohio. Dad is a, has a, a recycling uh, business, which is quite, quite big in, uh, in Akron. Uh, um, several uh, brothers, a brother and several sisters. 
Um, he, at one point, uh, you know, he's kind of one of these, uh, in the early 90s, he's kind of one of these kids who's not particularly maybe fond of school, very handsome guy, a lot of girlfriends, um, a little bit of a rebel. And, you know, back then there was this kind of romantic idea, of, you know, if you're that, that kind of kid, drugs are part of the scene, part of the story a little bit. At one point he goes in uh, for uh, to be treated for um, carpal tunnel syndrome in his hands because he's working in his dad's factory. They give him this. This was the era. Um, I believe it was 2001 or two. Um, this was the era in which doctors were prescribing these pills for everything. Almost everything. There's no reason you should prescribe opioids for carpal tunnel syndrome, but he got, and so he got these, this Vicodin prescription, I think it was. This led to him abusing these drugs, and then he had his wisdom tooth extracted. More of these drugs were prescribed. And so within a couple of years, because of this very excessive prescribing of drugs for situations that probably don't you know, require it, um, he's pretty much hooked. And then after a while, he's, he's, he's um, on, onto, onto heroin. He makes that transition that so, so many Americans um, uh, made beginning in, I think he was by 05, 06, he was, and that, that really ruled his life. He was this rebel, you know, but he became very obedient uh, to the dope. The dope just uh, mastered his, his, his life and um, numerous attempts to, to get rehab and so on. He lasted for years on heroin, but it was, it's a sign of what the story is all about, that as soon as, as fentanyl hit Akron, Within a, a month or two, Tommy Rao died. He was found dead on a toilet uh, 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 in, a, in a place that he would rented. A kind of he was really down on his luck. And most of his youth has been spent following drugs, and 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 he died. But it, but the the striking thing to me was that that how long he had lived on heroin, how quickly he had died uh, when fentanyl showed up. Um, you were talking about you know prescribing pain pills. And you also dedicate a lot of pages to um, Purdue Pharma, the company um, that sold OxyContin, that sells OxyContin. And you describe their you know, sales marketing approach. They hired former cheerleaders and football players. You know, why, did they, why did they do this? And how did that contribute to their, their sales? Well, they understood something that I think most drug traffickers and dealers understand, that as long as we can get people to use these drugs for a bit, maybe a month or two or three, um, they are going to stick, stick with those drugs because they'll be, they'll be dependent. Um, and so Sackler family, um, which owns Purdue, was on the board technically, but really the, the, the evidence is showing that they were a very, very activist board. They were more like the, the, the de facto CEOs of that, of that company, were just very, very aggressive in pushing the company to get doctors to prescribe to people and, and lower dose, but then increasing the dose over, over time. The, lo- the higher the dose, the more likely those people are going to be on on, on it for, for years, for five years. I think they showed 90 days will lead you to five years of, of use very quickly. That's what the data that they had uh, showed. And, and so it was this very, very aggressive push. It was almost as if, excuse me, it was almost as if they were as addicted to the money from OxyContin. This is what I write in the book. It seems as if they were addic- as addicted to the money coming in from OxyContin as any street addict was to heroin or the, their, their, 
their their pills you know it was like they they couldn't imagine like any addict on the street can't imagine life without the pills this family from the evidence that's very clear coming clearly coming out now and subpoenaed records and so on this family it felt it felt to me reading a lot of these emails and so on that's now they're now divulged just felt like it just couldn't you know function without money from this from the from this drug and never really diversified that company that company always sold really one product 90 percent of their revenue comes from oxy came from oxy oxycontin and so it was almost as it what a strange thing that came out of it was a very overwhelming feeling as as i read this stuff that that they were now um as addicted to the cash as as some of these addicts on the street were to to uh to oxycontin or to heroin or now to fentanyl you describe some really aggressive, you know, sales tactics, incentives. Um, can you describe a few of those? Uh, there was a, oh man, there was a lot, but there were like discount, one of the most, how should I call it, devious, I guess I'll say, um, approaches was that they would give you a discount card. So they would discount the first, I can't remember what it is now, five, five weeks, eight weeks of OxyContin knowing full well that if you get this this stuff really cheap for that long there's a very high likelihood that you will stick with it and you will never get off it or you will not get off of it you will still be on it five years later they would discount cards they were they would have these sales um uh, uh promotions for you know and and they they paid of course notoriously or legendarily they paid the very highest um uh, uh bonuses to the to the um to their sales force ever paid, I believe still, still the case ever paid in, in the pharmaceutical industry. They were also, they were also part of a major shift. And this is really, really important. I think to this whole story for many years, the pharmaceutical salesman, usually a, a man, kind of a gray suited guy normally had background in pharma pharmaceuticals or, or pharmacy of some kind or medicine was a, for, a retired doctor of some kind. So they knew these guys knew what they were selling. They also were of the community. And so they, they really valued the, 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 the connection that they had with each doc, the docs in turn valued the connection with those sales reps because medicine was changing so fast. These doctors to keep up had to rely on these guys for a little bit of like, what do I do with this? Do I put this drug with that? They, they believe those guys because their credibility was of foremost importance to these sales reps. A lot of times you'd see the reps, you know, at a football game on Friday nights or at church or what have you. So this was the way pharmaceutical sales was done in for many years until right about the time Oxycontin came out. And, and that is what began, began an, a, 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 like a, a, a sales force, you know, arms race. All those older guys are kind of eased out in their place or are, are, are brought in. Many, many young people, a lot of women, everybody is good looking. They don't have any background in, in medicine or in pharm pharmaceuticals or in pharmacy. They don't know what they're selling, but they do know how to sell. A lot of them come from sales jobs, one or two jobs outside out of college. And, and the, the numbers just multiply. So you have 38,000, I think it was, salesmen in 1995 and by 2005 there's 102,000 uh, pharmaceutical salesmen in, in America and it's just a, a remarkable thing and it's a very aggressive sales it's not messing around anymore there's no focus on credibility it's just buy this do this this is what what we think is working um, all these slogans that even the, the, the reps didn't really understand or the, the science that the reps didn't understand and that is a major part of what got us into 
the opioid thing, but it was Purdue Pharma that was doing that. And Purdue Pharma was the only company of all of the companies that did this. All the companies did this, but it was the only company whose main product was a narcotic painkiller sold as if it was not, not addictive. Um, you also describe uh, almost a level of harassment of doctors to prescribe more. Yeah. Oh no, without a doubt. And and they're 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 like locusts, you know. I mean, uh, I had um, I, I talked tell the story of uh, Doc Doc O, Doctor Lou Lou Hortensio, who himself got addicted to the stuff. Uh, was a doctor who was very much trying to help his very beleaguered Rust Belt community in West Virginia. Um, his daughter worked in his clinic uh, for a lot of years. And she said, you would, it was insane. You would see these people come and go every day. You had to sign these guys up. Um, They brought all kinds of stuff to, to, for, for, you know, gifts, little, you know, exercise balls, pressure balls, whatever, pens, pads. But the main thing they brought, the main thing they brought, and they understood this very well, was food. That you break bread with somebody, you develop um, a, 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 a connection with them. And so every day, of, uh, there was a, like a three-week rotating um, uh, rotation. Every day, a different farmer rep would, ha- would bring lunch. for. And if they were smart, they, and a lot of them were, they brought a lot for more than the, the staff could eat because they knew the staff wasn't paid very well, so they could take that food home for their kids. Once you have the staff on your, on your, under your, on your, on your side... Well, the doctor's putty in your hands at that point. So it was like this very well thought out marketing campaign. And of course, it, it morphed and innovated um, uh, for, for many years. But uh, and again, this was to sell all kinds of products. It wasn't just opioids, but it was the opioids that seemed to have the greatest impact because they were they were they created this kind of like repeat um, patient uh, syndrome. When you were talking about Tommy Rao, you said that he, like many other people, made the transition from pain pills to heroin. How does that, how does that transition happen? Because I think some people who would take pain pills would think of themselves as never being the kind of person who would... No, sure, and, and, yet, the and, and that's true, and many people don't. Many people don't. I have had them, and I didn't myself. What ends up happening, though, is, is uh, uh, people are... Th- these, these pills are chemically similar to the drugs in them are chemically similar to heroin and chemically similar to fentanyl, right? So you've got all these, the, the, this like potential lineage. You can, you can, what happens is um, people begin to use them. They begin to use them over a period of time, not for just for acute pain for like three days to five days, but for, for longer term. And then a lot of times people would use the whole bottle because isn't that what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to use the whole bottle when they give you a bottle. Um, and, and doctors are, you know, you're supposed to use them all up. I, I, that many people told me this, like, I thought I was supposed to use them all up. Um, but at a certain point, you're going to get into some dependency problems with, with those. And, and then it's, then it's it, a lot depends on what the doctor's response is. The doctors were woefully untrained in what to do with, with people who are verging on addiction. And they didn't, and these were a lot of them were primary care docs. They didn't really know what they were doing. So some of them, in fact, I think it was fairly common, would, would kind of freak out and slam shut the door. You get no more. Um, others, t- other times patients would lose their insurance, uh, that kind of thing. And others would just kind of gradually fade. But what they would eventually end up doing is fading to the street to get their pills. The pills on the street, so many of these pills were prescribed. 
that you had big black markets in all the different regions of the country. You had them in Albuquerque and Vermont, wherever. And, but on the, on the street, those pills now were being sold over a dollar a milligram. So if you have, you're using a, a 200, 300 milligrams of oxycodone a day, that's going to be 200, $300 a day. You cannot do that. That's not possible to sustain. And so a lot of people began switching to heroin, which, as I say, was coming up now from Mexico, very, very cheap, more potent, you know, than, than, than ever before. So and people just naturally, gradually, people would say, I'm never using heroin. Then they'd say, I'm, I'm well, they smoke it. And then I'm never going to use a needle. Well, then they shoot up Oxycontin. And then after that, the needle with the heroin was, was kind of a, a no brainer. A lot of people would say to me, it's like, it's just, it's fifth the price. It's a longer high. I'm going to switch to heroin. And that's why you begin to see, you really begin to see the transition to heroin really early on after Oxycontin comes out. You know, it comes out in 96 and by 98, I was, I know people who were that, that time period, but then it really accelerates um, later on in the 2000, 2010 to 15 years. And then fentanyl comes on the scene, which is even more potent. I mean, was it 50 or 100 times more potent than? Right than heroin. And so um, you break this, I mean, it it makes some people think, you know, once these overdoses start happening, and we see these, I mean, death tallies, really, it makes some people wonder, you know, what's the what's the market imperative there? Why would drug sellers want to, you know, kill off their customer base? like that? There's a lot of good reasons, um, good in quotation marks, why they why they would do that? Why they would want to do that? Good business reasons uh, for them. Uh, one of them is that, um, and and it's really connected to the vast supply that's being created down in Mexico. Is so much of it that you now can produce it in and 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 kind of almost like metaphorically kind of sprinkle it into all the other drugs that you might be selling. Why would you want to do that? First of all, it's dirt cheap. Second of all, some of the drugs that you're selling, cocaine, for example, is no, it comes up from Colombia. It's going to be stepped on a few times. So you want to, you want to boost the product kind of, and, and after one person do, does that in the, the Wild West kind of competition among dealers in one area or, uh, of the country, pretty much everybody has to start doing it. The other reason that you would want to do that is because the stuff that you're putting it into, cocaine and methamphetamine, um, for, most, most commonly, uh, are occasional drugs. They, they're drugs that people buy only a few, a few times a week, maybe. Um, if you add fentanyl to them, you will then add, uh, you will then create essentially an opioid addict. And an opioid addict has to buy every single day. So it's a market expansion idea. You expand your, your market of daily customers if you just add fentanyl. A lot of times these folks wouldn't even know that they were, were, were taking, they thought they were using cocaine, say, and it, within the cocaine was, was fentanyl. The other thing is when people die, that's not, it's a horrifying thing to say, honestly, but when people die, it's not a warning. You know, to me and you, it would be a warning. I'll never go close to that stuff, right? But if you're in full addiction, your brain is controlled by these drugs of abuse that have reverted all the evolution of, of brain systems that warn you against death and all this that, that are very intricate and very powerful in our brains. Those things are all subdued or muted. Um, and, and, and you say, you know, now with, when, you're, when you're just following obedient to the dope, when someone dies, that's a, that's a sign that that guy was selling really high potency dope. Let's go get that. 
This was very common, I think, in the, in the heroin-addicted uh, world, where whenever someone would die, people would flock to that person's dealer. And the, the same is true of, of fentanyl, that, 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 that this is not a warning. It's, a, it's, it's an advertisement, and you can see the, 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 the adding addition of fentanyl to the dope uh, for that reason. I was going to say an ad, an advertisement. Um, you write about the you know the the market you know these fentanyl flooding the streets, but it also made a lot of people rich. A lot of very young people with yeah. you know no experience pushing drugs. Um, in, in fact, you compare the rise of these small town fentanyl markets to the subprime mortgage crisis. What's what's right. the parallel there? The parallel is that uh, availability of supply with the subprime mortgage uh, 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 issue, you had an availability of a supply of money, everybody tripping over themselves, all these lawyers and bank and shady bank uh, execs and mortgage lenders and all these folks just tripping over themselves to provide loans for people who really had no business being owning a home because they just don't have the wherewithal. Their jobs won't pay for them. They either don't have the job history, on and on like that. But we began to see, because of this excess supply of, of mortgage loans, that, that, that people who got into it just had no business being in there. And, of course, what ended up happening is they end up for, uh, foreclosing, losing the house, and, and all that we saw, that take, we saw that what, all the, the, the result of all that. The same is true with fentanyl. The, the supply has been so vast that, that all kinds of people now are getting into selling it who have really, you know, honestly speaking, they really got no business being in the dope business. They don't know what they're doing. They make massive, they don't know to put the dope and the money in two separate plates, two different houses, that kind of stuff. They're, they're, they're like talk too much about it. They get home invasion robberies at their place. But it's all created, I think, because of this unprecedented supply of this stuff coming out of Mexico now. It, it makes kingpins out of nobodies. And then, of course, when they get caught, they do kingpin time. They do 15, 20 years when they might have done uh, two years when the, when, the, when the quantities were like an ounce or a gram. It was, you know, maybe jail time. Now it's, it's uh, 20 kilos. You're going to prison for 20 years on that. On that. And so the supply, it all gets back to the, this vast, vast supply of this extraordinarily potent stuff coming out of Mexico, creating these new kingpins. Anybody can be a kingpin now. Let's um, let's talk about meth a little bit. Uh, you know, another drug that is in very, very great supply right now. And but it doesn't quite get as much attention. You know, I think fentanyl is really the driver behind the numbers, the, the overdose deaths. We saw a 30 percent increase last year. Um, but yeah. when when you write about meth, you say, you know, people don't typically overdose on meth. They they decay. And so similar to Tommy Rao, you, you know, tell, you really kind of trace the story of meth through another man that you met while you were reporting, Eric Barrera. Yeah. Um, tell us about him and how, you know, his experience tracks. With right. I was very lucky it. to meet Eric Barrera. He came towards the very end of my writing the book. Up to that point, I had really planned a book uh, that told the story of meth purely from a supply angle, that this is they're capable of producing so much supply now because they have a new way of making methamphetamine that really relies on just industrial chemicals that are very easy to get on the world market and they get them through those ports. And so now what the story I thought was uh, that they could now make it in such 
colossal supply that it would inundate the country, uh, uh, cover all the areas that, that they had covered, and then across the Mississippi River, across the Midwest, up into New England, which never had any meth at all to, uh, to speak of. And they could do it, and the price would collapse, and, and that's what's happened, and that was the story. But then I met Eric. Eric was a, uh, is a Marine, ex-Marine, uh, worked, uh, got out in 2001, uh, had some depression issues, treated it with the methamphetamine that was coming out at the time, which was kind of a, the old, old way of making methamphetamine, was kind of a party drug, you know, again, big in the gay community, big, big kind of um, a thing where you better want to be around people. And he lasted like that for eight years, and, and he, he had a life. He, you know, gradually wasn't the best. He lost a couple of jobs, but he had jobs. He had an apartment. He had a car. And then he told me one night we were sitting at a pizza place. I met, met Eric. One, uh, he was now, uh, by, by the time I met him, he was a homeless outreach coordinator uh, in, in L.A. And, and we, were, we were at a pizza place outside one night. And he said, you know, what happened then was in 2009, the dope changed. And I went crazy. And I began uh, on this dope. Uh, I was horribly, horribly paranoid. I was sure my, my girlfriend had a man in the house. I began stabbing the, the mattress and then the walls trying to find this guy, you know, and it never went back to being the old meth. It became very, very sinister. I crawled into my brain and never talked to people and was homeless very quickly at that point. And I was just stunned by that story. I stopped him in the middle of it, that pizza press. I go, whoa, time out. What, what year was this? It's a 2009. And I knew that that was a crucial year because that was the year that in Mexico, they had to switch the way they made meth. And so this new method took hold right at that time. It made perfect sense to me. All of a sudden, they're now making meth with these with these chemicals. And suddenly this meth comes accompanied by um, what he described as severe symptoms of schizophrenia, paranoia, hallucinations. I began calling folks. I thought to myself, if the meth's all over America, Maybe these symptoms that he's reporting to me are too. And sure enough, that's, wh- that's what happened. I began to call all over. I talked to cops. I talked to neuropsychologists, West Virginia, drug counselors in very m- many different areas, in Portland and in rural Indiana, eastern Tennessee, West Virginia, Albuquerque, Virginia, et cetera, et cetera, all these different places. And what was stunning, uh, April, was the stories were almost all the same that as soon as this meth showed up, and this meth marched across the country over a few years. It starts in L.A., San Francisco, the West Coast in 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. It's in the Midwest, Ohio, West Virginia, et cetera. And 19, it's up there in in, in Vermont and New Hampshire and so on, and and Massachusetts. And and each place along the way, if you caught me, say, what did you see when that happened? They will describe to you vivid symptoms, just florid symptoms. Uh, psychosis, um, horrible uh, uh, screaming and and delusions, and among people who are on and they had different me- words for it. one one ER psychiatrist in Columbus called it the super meth. Eric's friends called it the weirdo dope. You whatever it was, it it the other thing though it did apart from creating these horrible symptoms of of mental illness is that it it, it created homelessness very very quickly. And um, that homelessness then began to march with the dope, you know, all across, all across the country. It was a remarkable thing. So you found people, yeah, in L.A. and San Francisco, we've had homelessness for a long time, but not so in, in small towns in West Virginia, never had it. And, but yet here comes legions of newly insane 
um, uh, people using this meth and losing their houses and, and then wandering the streets in, a, in psychotic states and so on. And, and then very quickly, important to note this too, very quickly turning to tents. Tents fit perfectly this new meth. If the world outside of you is a world of menace with enemies on every street corner and you can't trust any car that passes by and there's cheetahs coming out of the walls and there's all kinds of scary monsters, then a tent is a place where, and and you can't be in a homeless shelter because that's filled with all these people that you're terrified of. So there's no way you're going to a homeless shelter. All of a sudden the tent makes a lot of sense. All those tents on our streets I think make a lot of sense when you understand what has happened to the meth over the last, uh, well, eight years in, in the, on the West Coast, certainly. Um, you, you, you can see this all, all being part of the same issue. Yeah. And what Sorry. did happen with the meth? What, what, what was the change and what Well, what happened, well, first of all, let me say this. Um, what I'm reporting to you is pure street reporting. I'm not a neuroscientist. I don't study the, the effects of drugs on the human brain. There's no, been no mice studies, no rat studies, no journal, journal reports that have been peer-reviewed. None of that is happening. Uh, what I'm telling you is the remarkable um, uh, accompaniment, let's call it, of all these very, very dire symptoms and homelessness as the meth marches across America to the point where it's really all the way across up into Massachusetts. Now, what happened was this. When the Mexican trafficking world uh, 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 took over the meth industry, it did so with a, dr- with a chemical called ephedrine. Now, ephedrine is, it comes from the ephedra plants, an antihistamine, find in Sudafed pills. It's very easy to turn ephedrine into methamphetamine. A couple of quick chemical tweaks, and you're there. And so they did, and they were like, wow, this is great. We don't even know a thing about chemistry, but we can do this. So they did, and eventually they industrialized, and it became this enormous business. But they only could make as much ephedrine, meth as they had of ephedrine. And that meant that they really, their coverage, Mexican meth for many years never really made it even all the way across the West, certainly never made it over the Mississippi River. Instead, in those areas, you find a lot of people making it known as the way known as shake and bake, you know, a bunch of chemicals in a Mountain Dew bottle, and you get, you get like a few ounces at the most. It's really small-scale moonshiner-type stuff is really what it looked like to me. But um, in 2008, Mexican government decides we got to do something, and, they, uh, and I tell the story about what made them, led them to do that in the book, but they decide to make ephedrine illegal except for a, a few pharmaceutical companies to possess. The, the supply, the importation of ephedrine just collapses used to be hundreds of tons a year. Now it's down to very, very small amounts. And they have to switch. These traffickers who have banked on methamphetamine on making their own drugs, and this was the profit center now, um, now have to switch to a new way. This new way is called the P2P method. That's the P2P stands for phenyl-2-propanone. It's a, uh, the, the kind of the main uh, precursor in the system. But and what they find is the it's 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 a it's a very messy system. It stinks. A lot of different chemicals you have to use. It's not really a good replacement for ephedrine meth, except for one reason, for one thing, and that is that you can make P2P a million different, many many different ways with a variety of different chemicals, and so you are not bottlenecked by one one chemical like the way ephedrine was. So what happens is they begin to make all this stuff. And then they begin to shift and make P2P different ways. They have access to the world chemicals uh, through those ports down on, on, uh, in, on the western side of uh, Mexico. 
and they, and they control those ports. And so they are able to get all these chemicals. These are industrial, legal, common chemicals used in industry, very toxic. And what they begin to make this methamphetamine and then more and more people get into it as we, again, make marijuana illegal, more people flock to it. And what you begin to see is all out of Mexico every year is stunning quantities of this stuff, just stunning quantities. And it's making its way through the border because we have free trade. It's all those trucks and cars coming back and forth. They get it all up here. Um, and so, but the, the problem is that this meth is um, made with, now the best hunch, and it's really a hunch. I want to underline that. I don't really know what this is, what, what's, what's causing this. Okay. But the best hunch from people who seem to maybe they know is that maybe some of these chemicals are still in the, are still in the meth. On the other hand, the DEA says, no, we we're pretty much finding pretty pure methamphetamine. So why is this happening? You know, I don't know. What I can say is that the, 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 the meth, uh, reported by people on the ground very, very clearly that came, started coming out of Mexico in the quantities we're talking about in 2013 to the present, uh, most certainly was uh, associated, accompanied by uh, these horrible uh, psychotic effects and then homelessness. So, you know, this new meth has been around for 10, maybe 12 years now. Um, and we have a question from the audience, you know, how has this been going on so long without the government intervening? Which government? Mexico <laughs> or the United States? I mean, first of all, let me put it this way. If you're talking about the United States, meth is a stepchild to the opioid epidemic, okay? It's never got the same, you know, I wrote this book that kind of created this whole thing about the opioid epidemic, and rightly so. It was a major, major problem. But the truth is, that that um you know dead bodies get the headlines when people are dying and particularly when the opioid epidemic leads, leads to heroin which is this big bugaboo all the money all the focus all of that happens uh, uh f- directed towards towards that problem um and so i think meth has meth again doesn't kill people drives them into decay uh the Ephedrine meth used to really decay people over many years. You would see those posters of the people, their mugshots over six or eight years, and you end up with a person who didn't look anything like what she started with, that kind of thing. But um, this stuff, I think also, one person put it to me this way. People like to feel good about going to memorials. They feel good about you know, expressing condolences for people when they lose a loved one and this kind of thing. But the methamphetamine addiction is like the raw face of addiction. It's uh, a person out of his mind uh, screaming on the streets, a little bit like um, you read the first two parts of uh, Allen Ginsberg's Howl uh, and, and replace Moloch with methamphetamine. You have a, a, a new reading of that poem, but kind of the, the poem, the, the, uh, an interesting view of what's, what's going on on the, on the street. People still shy away from... Um, uh, that raw face of addiction. It's very hard uh, to look at. And um, I would say too, that in a lot of our communities, I, I think, I suspect San Francisco's one, I certainly know LA is one. Nobody ever wanted to talk about homelessness and methamphetamine in the same breath. And I think that's because people are afraid of stigmatizing uh, homeless people. Um, the, the, the question was all, the, the, the thing was always for, formulated as, well, this is a, a, a problem deal, uh, having to do with the high cost of, of housing. And certainly cause, housing is very high priced in, in both those towns. 
but that doesn't have anything to do with the meth-induced homelessness that we're seeing in the tent encampments, I think. Um, and, and so part of it is, I think, that people didn't want to. You know, there's, I've read numerous newspaper stories in Southern California about homelessness, and I think I've found the, the, the word uh, meth used in two or three of them. I mean, it's really like a kind of a willful blindness. We don't want to make homeless feel people into the victim, into, into the, we want to think of them as victims. And so we're not going to, we're not going to address this problem the way it used to. I think that's a big pro- part of what we just didn't want to notice. Why, why else? You know, I've asked myself this a lot. Why else am I scooping this story? I write books. And these books take like three, four years to write, you know? Meanwhile, you're stepping over this problem every time you go out in L.A. and San Francisco and Seattle and Portland, et cetera, Vegas, et cetera. Um, And so why would it be that? And why aren't the daily newspaper reporters doing this? Why isn't this a bigger deal down? You know, um, uh, why haven't they figured this out? All you do is walk down and talk to people and they will tell you in those uncertain terms what's going on. And I, and I think, I'm, I don't know, but I, I, I don't know all the reasons, but I, but I do believe that it has something to do with this kind of like willful myopia that we've kind of entered into when it comes to these problems. We don't want to recognize what the real stuff is going on. I remember talking to an addiction doctor based in LA who, you know, in, in reference to, are we talking about fentanyl and opioids or are we talking about meth, said, you know, America only has so much tolerance you know, to talk about addiction. And if fentanyl and yes. opioids are taking up all the space, then there, there's no room left for math. Oh, that's, a, that's a thoughtful, that's a thoughtful uh, comment, I would say. Yes, I would say that there's like a, a compassion uh, uh, reservoir that, that depletes very, um, um, you know, very, very, very quickly. And part of that is also due to, I would say, um, another thing I tried to deal with in the book was a, a better understanding of the neuroscience of addiction. Talked to a lot of neuroscientists for this book. And I, and I came, one of the most mind blowing things that I, I, for me anyway, would blow my mind was that, that this was um, when, when, you know, we have these, again, as I was saying, these, these systems in our brains that keep us alive, that do all these things to keep it, food, push it to eat like, like food, sex, but also, uh, respond extraordinarily fast to danger. Um, watch out, here comes the cheetah, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, otherwise we die. We don't, we don't make it this far, you know. Um, the remarkable thing about drugs of abuse, I think, is that these drugs revert eons of evolution. I mean, it's an amazing idea that these drugs just can suppress, not only suppress all these things that keep us alive, that warn us of death coming and this kind of thing. Not only that, but they, they, um, they were, they, they, these drugs use these systems to betray us. Tommy Rao, you know, uh, had all these systems in his brain, and yet fentanyl took it over, and, and he, and he and just as death approached, people OD but, uh, and, 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 and die without, without these systems alerting, hey, you're dying, wake up, you know, that kind of thing, which is what they ought to do. But it's even more than that. It's, it's, you can see this in a more mundane way in every tent encampment. It's people living without hygiene, running water, food, uh, living for the dope, just completely enslaved, um, brainwashed, in my view, it's how a good way to put it, to, to, this, to, to this dope. And that's kind of... Um, that that also exp- I don't think Americans fully get that process that goes on. To me, that's one of the things I wanted to explain in more more detail. 
And it's a way of just maybe adding to the education of some Americans that, that this is what's going on in an addict's brain. It's a very scary thing. And anybody, we can all be there, right? Um, we have another question from um, a viewer who asks, through your research and visiting with all involved, what words of wisdom would you give to those of us trying to fight this epidemic and make a difference in our community? That's a great, great question. It's a long, there's a lot of things that are, that are part of it. One of them is to understand that we are no, we, the, the, end, the day of recreational drug use is over. Okay? There is no such thing anymore. The drugs are too menacing. To me, this feels more, I have to say, as much like a poisoning as it does like a real issue of drug addiction, honestly. I mean, it's, 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 the stuff out there is so powerful. And that's really, um, you know, I, I, I came at this with that questioner's idea in mind. Like, what is possible? What can we do? We've not only got all these drugs coming in, we've got all these things that are, that are trying to, you know, these legal things, sugar, social media, video, again, pornography, gambling, et cetera, all these nicotine and alcohol, all these different things that are constantly bombarding us, you know, that are highly addictive during the World Series. I don't know if you saw this, but they were, they were flashing these apps that said, you can bet on whether or not this guy is going to get a hit next. You get this odds, you can $10, I'll get you four. It's just outrageous. I just thought it was an outrageous attempt to, to addict Americans, basically, is what it is, you know. So what do we do? How do we approach this world where the dope is so scary and all around us are, 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 are fast food companies using it the language of addiction? Trigger cravings. Our tacos will trigger you to love this stuff. You know? And my feeling is that as time went on, I began to say that perhaps the only way, the only thing that we have, although it's immensely, um, immensely powerful, is a return to kind of local community, making sure that you are as tight and, as, and, and working as strongly as you possibly can in your neighborhood, on your street, with, with people uh, that you know. And that's really why, um, as I set out to do this book, we talked about one half of the book, really, or probably less than half the book. The other big chunk of the book was really my attempt to tell stories, tell stories of Americans involved in uh, community, community repair. I wanted to tell the least sexy, the most unnoticed, the smallest steps, people st- you know, working every day in, in very unheralded ways that won't even make the, the local news. And uh, Americans doing this as, as part of community repair. To me, that returning there, not that this is a prescription necessarily, but this attitude that we all need to take it seems to me to be almost paramount importance now to return to our community, make sure we know everybody in the street, make sure we, we at our churches or our synagogues or our mosques, we, we, we are working outside with others. You know, to me, we have had that shredded. In the last 40 years in this country, for many reasons, taking a whole hour to talk about if we want to, we have had a community shredded and we need to recover that it seems to me, and the 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 ease with which this dope is spread, the ease ease with which we get it, uh, you know, we get bombarded with all this stuff from uh, legitimate uh, uh, legal industries, has a lot to do with the fact I think that we we no longer have that deep those deep connections to where we live, and that that we no longer you know we 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 don't we don't know each other. So how do we propose solutions to one another? You know, there is in in life there you know working like this. It's very difficult to find, find solutions. We work like this. 
all of a sudden those solutions you never knew were possible the synergy makes it makes it all possible that's how human beings innovate in community we evolved to be that way and over the last I say 40 years at least, we have decided, no, it doesn't really matter. That stuff's not worth it. We can, we're prospering us and we don't need everybody else, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's contrary to how we evolved. And so, so the other part of the book is really a bunch of stories that I just loved finding. I, 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 I loved these stories more than the dope stories because it was like fascinating. It was like small stuff. No one was showing me press releases to a guy named Bird in Muncie, Indiana, right, um, who was a strange man, never left his little neighborhood, which had been de- devastated by the departure of two major transmission factories over the years. He was just always there, a, a kind of a strange guy, drank sodas too much, ate the worst fast food. But as the t- neighborhood began to decline after the factories closed, the city closes the community center, which was really like the hub of that neighborhood. It couldn't, and, and they cut the budget, you know, the, 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 they just didn't want to keep it open. And, but Bird kept the key. And Bird kept the key. He, he, he had worked there before. He kept the, keeps the key. Unbeknownst to the city for years, he just goes and opens the, the community center when the kids want to play basketball, when the, when the older folks want to play cards. It's kind of like he mows the lawn, all of this completely without pay. For several years, he's the guy who sustains the neighborhood in the worst of what's going on uh, economically as part of deindustrialization. It's just a beautiful story. When you find these stories, uh, April, you must feel this at times yourself as a, as a journalist. You sometimes wonder, am I, what did I do to deserve to find this story, number one? Number two, am I worthy? Can I tell this the, with the power that it deserves? You know, and so half the book, the, the, and the reason I, you know, the, 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 is, is about these stories of people who understand the main lesson of the epidemic and the pandemic, for that matter, which is, in my opinion, we're strongest in community, whereas, whereas weak is the most vulnerable and the least of us lie within us all. And that's why I titled the book, The Least of Us, because it's through attending to that and understanding that we all have this in, our, in ourselves that, that we will kind of come to a, a better understanding of community um, and what we need to do to repair it on the most micro level and not worry that we're not saving the world. You know, when I read some of those, the stories of these, you know, small town heroes that you write about, sometimes, and maybe this is also just something that happens to us journalists, there's the cynical part can't help but come through and just sort of ask, but what kind of difference can this, you know, one person in a small town have against these massive global financial forces? Sure. And I think, I think the idea is to not worry about that, to do the small stuff, to make them small impact. And you know, it does. Here's, here's, here's one example that I think is very important. It's in the headlines right now. When I wrote Dreamland, as I said, nobody wanted to talk about it. I just, everyone was ashamed. Their son or their husband or their daughter or their wife had died in this horrible way, and nobody wanted to talk about it. It was very, very hidden. But then as the book comes out, all of a sudden, you see these people coming out of the shadows very gradually. They're on Facebook. They're hitting up the state legislator and the Krogers or whatever, and the, and the, and the, the DA and the mayor, and begin, you begin to feel this grassroots kind of stuff growing from below. Um, and it's unorganized, no spokesman, no many, many Facebook pages, but they all have the same thing in common. They want to come out. 
And I would submit to you that that is one of the great grassroots movements of our time, except that no one's ever noticed it. And the, the effect has been all of these lawsuits that have tried to pop, pry money away from some of these very powerful moneyed corporate, pharmaceutical corporations, those happen because of this. Eventually, all these, D, these attorneys general realize, I got to do something. All these people are asking me what I'm doing, and I, I don't even know if there's a problem, but I got to get educated. And so what ends up happening is all the, DA, all the attorneys general AGs in the, in, the, in the country, every single one, employs their offices with a lot of budget, a lot of very talented, knowledgeable uh, experienced litigators and investigators, and they subpoena these records and divulge all this stuff, which for reporters is fantastic because all of a sudden private companies are having to divulge all this stuff that now becomes public. But more than that, they begin to file lawsuits. All these lawsuits that we have seen, when I, when I, when I was, wrote Dreamland, there were three. I, I mean, there were three lawsuits, right? Now there's like 2,600 to 3,000. I don't even know how many there are. Honestly, it's just stopped stopped counting. That is only possible because people came in small ways, small steps, moved out of the shadows, made themselves heard. Many more still in the shadows, but enough came. So it pushed political pressure on the mayors, on the state legislators, then on the attorney, on the governors, the AGs and all that. And you begin to, one of the effects of that is first of all, rewriting of priorities, budget, all that kind of stuff. But the other is all these lawsuits that never were happening. They would never. I wandered around a particularly hard-hit neighborhood in southern Ohio one day, thinking to myself, "There is no way these companies, particularly Purdue Pharma, are ever going to have to pony up anything. They are too powerful. The people who who are affected have almost no voice, and and and, and yet it's with this great movement out in small ways." Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people moving out of the shadows, adding their voice. It's really one of the great grassroots political movements of our time, except for it's not noticed, nor is it organized, nor is there a spokesman. You can't find it. You know, the person, you, who do you talk to as a reporter about this? You don't, you know, but it did, it did happen. So it, that is an amazing example. And within right now, I mean, within the last two years of, of what happens when people move out and don't care that they're not saving the world. They just want to be heard and, and, and push in their own little way. That's what I got. Well, okay. it's, it's, <laughs> I think it's a good note to end on. Just one final quick question. You know, sure. is, there a, is there a third book in your series on this or are you ready to move on oh, to man. a different topic? Um, you know, I, um, who knows? I don't know. I didn't think I'd write this one. I don't really know. Um, there are a lot of other things I'd like to write. I mean, I, when I was in Mexico, I wrote, I want to write a, a, non, a fictional version of a, of a story that's just beautiful. The, the first Chinese Mexican beauty queen in Mexico was selected in Mazatlan for Carnival, Queen of Carnival in 1961. And she was selected um, because uh, by a method that they used that, that year. And that is to collect whoever collects the most Pepsi bottle caps, literally true, true story. And she won the carnival because she collected eight, 800,000 uh, Pepsi, Pepsi bottle caps. She in the Chinese community in, in Mazatlan. I want to write a young adult version of that. Um, I want to, I've got a guy in, in California state prison um, who's uh, three triple lifer killed three people. He's wrote, written a magnificent memoir uh, uh, that needs to be edited and reduced in size, but I want to kind of do that. Uh, he grew up in the kind of the gang world of, of Los Angeles, the Mexican mafia and all that stuff. Um, 
There's a story in my first book about the guy, a guy named Chalino Sanchez. Chalino Sanchez was kind of like the godfather of the narco corrido, the narcotic, the narco ballad out of Mexico. I want to write a full-length biography of him. I'm kind of about the third of the way down on that one, actually. So, and, and finally, I want to say, um, uh, when I was in L.A., I began doing stories, bizarrely enough, about the tuba world. Um, Mexico, yeah, when I was growing up in L.A., everyone wanted to play the, wanted to play the guitar in the Mexican community. Now down in L.A., everybody wants to play the, the tuba. And that led me to see that there was actually two tuba worlds, the Mexican and the non-Mexican, everybody else, right? And so I began to in- interview all these tuba players on both sides. And, and, um, and the strange fact is that there's only, do you understand? Do you know something that's very interesting? There, uh, uh, all the innovation in musical instruments, there's only been two perfect tubas ever made. Isn't that an interesting fact? I want to I wanna write that kind of story too. Um, but I'm leaving myself wide open. This is, a, this is, I wrote, I got into this story because, and, 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 and became enthralled with it and, 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 and committed to it because you're writing about more than just dope. You're writing it about America. That's what these stories are about. That's what the least of us is about. That's what I realized in, on the way that Dreamland was about. I didn't understand that at first. It's about who we are as a country, right? what we become, what happens when you shred community, what happens when people try to put it back together and work their best. You know? So to me, if you're writing about your own country in these kind of metaphorical ways and, and very real ways as well, well, that's not something you turn your back on too, too closely. But the truth is, I, I'm sure like you, um, I am fascinated by like everything, you know, there's almost I, I, every story. I mean, it just, you know, I just, every story is just like, wow, man, this is the best job. Who the hell ever gave me this? I love this job, man. You know what I mean? And I just, I just think of that as kind of the way I, uh, I I'm, I'm so fascinated by everything that who knows what'll be next. It's, it's, it's a, it's an exciting way uh, to live because it's not even work. You know what I mean? Whatever you write, I can't wait to read what thank comes you, next. Thank you, April. You're too, too kind. <laughs> well, Sam Quinones, thank you again for joining today's discussion. Um, Sam Quinones is the author of The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. You can soon view this program and others like it on the Commonwealth Club website at www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm April Domboski, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. See you guys. Join us November 19th at 6 p.m. Pacific time for a virtual fundraising gala and celebrate the leadership of women in science and medicine. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club and support our critical mission to provide balanced civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2021 to 41444 to register and donate today. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.